0: All right. Well, good morning, you guys. Good morning, good morning, good morning. My name is Steve, and I am the lead pastor. And uh, shout out uh, for that reading. I love to give difficult passages filled with uh, names and places that are hard to pronounce just so I can be entertained uh, as I listen to reading. Um, So... Well done, well done. Uh, my name is Stephen, and, and I am welcoming you this morning to our distance gathering. Thanks for jumping on with us. I do want to encourage you, if you're watching this on Vimeo or on, on Facebook, to be sure to like our page, like Trailhead Online. Uh, on Facebook. And and, and if you want to, you can join Trailhead's men's page and women's page because that's where we have conversations going. We're praying for each other. We're processing things together. You can also be connected to a lot of information. You can also join us on Twitter and Instagram as we continue to push out information and stay connected during this time of social distancing. Uh, It's been a rough couple of months, y'all. It's been a rough couple of months. Um, It seems like I say that every single week. Um, Obviously, it started with the pandemic, Uh, that, that was rough, um, and, and then uh, some personal things um, that were happening, and that was rough, and, uh, and this week, um, honestly, it's just been overwhelming, um, and I want to take some time this morning to pause and pray for the events that are unfolding in our nation around us, and, and, and if you're not up to speed, let me, let me help you out a little bit. A series of events have taken place over the last couple of months uh, that have absolutely um, surfaced once again. Some of the anger, the turmoil, and the racial tension that exists right underneath the surface. On February 23rd, 25-year-old Ahmad Arbery was shot and killed in Georgia um, by two white men in a, in a truck, um, while a third white man in a car uh, filmed the whole thing behind them. Uh, he was running through a predominantly white neighborhood. And uh, um, when they confronted him, they, they followed him for about four minutes and then uh, tried to cut him off multiple times. They finally surrounded him. Uh, and When they got out with a shotgun, he resisted, and um, they ended up shooting and killing him. March 13th, 26-year-old Breonna Taylor was shot eight times. While she was in her bed in Louisville, while she s- slept, suddenly woken up, uh, when a number of plainclothes police officers broke into her home, uh, serving a no-knock warrant um, for um, someone who wasn't there. And when her boyfriend, uh, seeing the intruders, took action, uh, he thought to protect himself. Um, Ended up with her being shot eight times. May twenty fifth. Forty uh, six year old George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis when a police officer arrested him for um, writing a fraudulent check or passing a bad twenty dollar bill. The story's a little fuzzy, but he George had been laid off through COVID nineteen and and the, and the store thought he was fraudulently trying to spend money. The um, police officer kneeled on his neck for almost nine minutes while he repeatedly said, I can't breathe. And he died right there in the street on the video. Um, there was a video of Ahmaud Arbery. There was a video of George Floyd. Those things hit social media. Listen, y'all, for, for every one of these events that's captured on video... Uh, there are countless others that aren't, right? It's important for us to realize that that these aren't just problems, individual unique situations, the weird things that pop up in an otherwise normal chain of events. Um, These aren't problems with individuals. They're problems with systems that empower and protect individuals. Um, The officer who killed George Floyd had 18 previous citations for excessive force and abuse, 18. Uh, And yet he was protected and continued to be empowered. The men who chased Ahmad um, were unofficially deputized or empowered by the local police force. Um... And they were not charged until the video surfaced and actually created a national uproar that forced them to actually hold people accountable. These aren't strange one-time events. They're part of a larger problem. These strange one-time events bring this larger problem to the national scene and tap into an underlying pain and anger that exists in our minority communities, especially communities of poverty, where they have hostile relationships with police forces that often have hostile relationships with them. It's part of a larger problem with how we deal with crime as a nation, how we deal with poverty, and how we relate to black bodies. As of this weekend, there are more than 30 cities experiencing protests. Many of them are peaceful. Some are violent. And of course, it's the violence that captures our media attention. Those are the images that fill our screens, the burning target stores, the broken windows, the destruction. Y'all now, now is the time. It always is the time, but now is the time for us to pray. Uh, one of the most important ways we, as the people of God, serve our community, the way, one of the critical ways we are a blessing to our city is to pray. So I would ask you to pray with me. Father, we, we come into your, your holy presence this morning. The God of all creation, the God who has made every individual human in your own image, even though we have twisted that image in our sin. Lord, you are the one who created us, you are the one who paid the price to redeem us, you are the one who has the ability to restore us, and so we come to you as the God over all these things, and we ask, Lord, for comfort for the families and friends of Ahmad Arbery and Brianna Taylor and George Floyd. Lord, I also want to pray for my black friends who have been reminded that they are at increased risk through these series of events, increasing their sense of insecurity and vulnerability in their communities and reawakening within them memories of experiences of of racism and violence that they've suffered. Lord, I pray for the local, regional, and national leaders that are um, in the cities of unrest and, and, and over the systems that ultimately will respond. Lord, we pray that those with wisdom will have a voice and be able to lead well. And we pray, Lord, that those who are foolish would be silenced and their voice would carry no further than their own heads. Lord, we pray against those who would foment this turmoil, that would use this unrest for political advantage. Lord, turn their scheming against them. Your word tells us, Lord, in Proverbs 31, 8, and 9, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Lord, let us be a people who open our mouths and use our voices for those whose voices aren't heard. Let us be a people who speak for the rights of those who are destitute. Let us be a people who open our mouths to defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Not to protect the powerful, the rich, or the comfortable, but to speak out for those whose voices can't protect themselves. Lord, we long for your kingdom. We we long for all things to be made right. We long for your righteous, righteous reign. Let us as your people be voices in this time, in our space, voices of peace and love and grace in these times of unrest. Lord, we pray for peace. And Lord, we pray for justice. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Come soon, and it's in His holy name we pray. Amen. All right, our passage this morning, um, Pentecost. What a what a crazy passage, right? What a crazy passage. It is full of powerful, vivid imagery. The disciples in this upper room and and. And uh, uh, the Spirit comes with a rushing wind and, and these flames of fire are on top of their heads. And, and, and they're looking around at each other going, holy cow, it's not just me, it's you too. And, and then suddenly they're, they're filled with the gifting of the Spirit so that they, they, they are just filled with so much joy. They have to share the good news that Jesus was raised from the dead. And, and they spill out of the house in their joy. And as they're sharing this good news... They're sharing it in languages they've never learned, right? The Spirit has given them this incredible gifting that allows them to to speak in tongues. The the Greek word for tongues is languages. They are speaking in languages they've never learned, so that that this really diverse crowd of people that had gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost were all hearing them in their own language, right? Now, it was a gift of of speaking, not a gift of hearing, um, but it allowed them to share the gospel in in their joy, and we learned that, that about 3,000 people become believers in that time. What a crazy and wonderful passage. This is, in many ways, the coming out party of the Holy Spirit. And I mean that with, with all reverence and respect. But, but up to this point, man, the Holy Spirit, of course, has been part of the story from the beginning. He's the third person of the Trinity, right? Three who's, one what. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He was there at creation, hovering over the waters. Um, He he, he is God, right? He's been there the whole time, but but in our passage, He suddenly and dramatically steps out from behind the scenes with a rushing wind, flames of fire, gifts of of languages. Y'all, as I sat in this passage this week and I was thinking about this and and the rest of it, um, I decided that we needed to spend some time studying the person and the work of the holy spirit i just got this impression that that we needed to spend more time looking at the work of the holy spirit that it would be uniquely valuable to us in this time starting this week this next week we're going to start a new sermon series on the holy spirit and we're going to be talking about the spirit-filled life now i know some of you are really looking forward to us going back to romans and i get it i'm looking forward to going back to the book of romans we'll get there you guys know how much i love that book But this is an unusual season, and in this unusual season, I want to remain responsive to what the Spirit of God is is telling me is going to be edifying and and, and encouraging for us in this crazy time. And so as I studied for today, I just really felt like we needed to stay here for a little while, not not in Acts chapter two, but but looking at this incredible person of the Spirit who 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 you know like I is is often misunderstood. Sometimes feared, often ignored, and and to start answering important questions like why is the indwelling of the Spirit so important? Right? What does he actually do? What's the difference between being baptized in the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit? And why does it even matter, right? Through it all, how does this make any difference to my daily experience of joy and strength and hope? Yeah, I think this is gonna be an important study for us. So starting next week, we're gonna be studying. Uh, we are going to take a, a little bit of time and dedicate it to this sermon series, The Spirit-Filled Life. So I want to invite you back for that. So in Acts chapter 2, we have these crazy events. The Spirit shows up with a loud rushing, right, with wind, with flames of fire, and He gives supernatural gifts, and, and, and the, the Holy Spirit is center stage in this passage, right? He goes from being in the background um, to suddenly being like right there in our faces, and, and, and today... Um, for us to understand what's actually happening in Acts chapter 2, I think we need to step into the background. I think, I think we need to step back and, and pay attention to some things that, that honestly we, we're going to miss if we're not paying careful attention to the context, right? And not just the context of the book of Acts, right? The, we, we've kind of looked at that, that Jesus promised the Spirit and then ascended into heaven, told them to go gather in this room, and he sent the Spirit, right? I'm not talking about just that immediate context. I'm talking about the context of the whole Bible. This is one of those events that is critical to the big story of redemption and restoration that God is telling, like the big whole Bible story, right? Everything in the Bible is important. But there are those events that are critical turning points in redemptive history, and this is one of those those events. And that means that that, that if we're going to understand it, we need to spend a little bit of time taking a look at how this event fits into the pattern of redemptive history that God is telling, specifically how it ties into the Old Testament Jewish events that are the backdrop to these New Testament events, right? Acts chapter 2 verse 1 tells us that, uh, that when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So a critical question I want to answer today, what's Pentecost and why does it even matter? Why is it important that these events took place on Pentecost? And how do we understand this? Well, Pentecost was a celebratory feast. There were six feasts that that took place. Uh, Leviticus 23 tells us about them. This is actually the third and the sixth. Um, But but Pentecost is a celebratory feast that was known as the Feast of the Harvest because it came at harvest time and and, and the nation would gather and they would basically just party, uh, giving thanks to God for His goodness, right? It's also known as the Feast of Weeks which is kind of a funny name, the Feast of Weeks. Uh, I'll tell you why. It's because this Feast of Pentecost takes place seven weeks after the second day of Passover. And there's a reason for that. It takes place seven weeks after the second day of the Feast of Passover. And if you, you're good at math, you've already done the addition. That's, that's 50, <laughs> 50 days. 50 days. That's what Penta means. Pentecost is the Feast of 50. It is 50 days after um, Pentecost, I mean uh, uh, Passover. So what that means is that we need to talk a little bit about the first Passover, and we need to talk a little bit about the first Pentecost. Some of y'all are like, I didn't know there was a first Pentecost. Awesome. I get to teach you something new uh, this morning. Uh, But there are a first Passover and a first uh, Pentecost, Pentecost in the Old Testament, and, uh, and and I want to talk about those. First of all, Passover. Passover, the Feast of Passover, commemorates the events of Exodus chapter twelve. Exodus chapter twelve is in that in that really really important season, and it, most of us know the story. It, it's you know, Charlton Heston has a famous movie and, and um, you know, the Ten Commandments. and Not Ten Commandments, uh, the, the, the Ten Plagues that Come. Um, God's people, Israelites, were held in bondage in Egypt for almost 500 years. And God raised up a prophet named Moses to deliver them. And then he sent him to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And, and Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not respond to God. And so over the course of ten plagues, God judges the ten deities of Egypt. And and these plagues are kind of diverse, right? There's there's the sending of the locusts to to devour the crops, which is the judge of their their, uh, god of of produce. Uh, The frogs, because they had a frog god, they they come. The the turning of the river, um, the Nile, to to blood red, um, judging the the river god, the, the source of their water and their life. Um, each of these, these judgments is a reminder to Pharaoh um, that, that Yahweh is the one true God. In Exodus chapter 12, we come to the culminating plague, the final plague, the 10th plague. In the final plague, God is going to kill the firstborn of every creature in Israel, every human, uh, the cattle, the livestock. Uh, and this is a judgment on pharaoh himself because pharaoh believed himself to be deity and his firstborn son to be the incarnation of deity Um, that he was himself god and uh, that his firstborn son was the embodiment of godhood who would follow him as being pharaoh so he sent a plague to kill the firstborn children now god warned his people about this the Israelites, and said, hey, y'all, if you want to be spared from this judgment, there's something you need to do, right? You need, you need to take a lamb, and you need to sacrifice this lamb. You're going to kill it. Um, you're going to take its blood, and you're going to put it on the doorposts on each side of your door, and the lintel, that, that bar above your front door, right? So that when you go in, you are surrounded by this blood. It is on, on your left and on your right, and, in, and it is above your head, And when you go in, you're not going to come back out. You're going to go into the house, and and you're going to to roast this lamb over a fire, uh, and you're going to eat unleavened bread. Uh, what, Passover feast is sometimes called the feast of unleavened bread because of this. Uh, you're going to eat with your sandals on. You're going to eat like you're, you're ready to go because um, you need to be ready because once I tell you it's time to leave, it's going to be time to leave. And, and so sometimes this is called the feast of unleavened bread because they, leaven takes time to rise, right? When you put yeast in something, it takes time to rise. It, it takes longer to cook. And so it was unleavened bread because it was, it was, it was bread that could be grabbed in a hurry. It was, it was something that could be made on the run. And so they went into their house that night, and they ate their lamb, and, and, um, and they stayed inside. Exodus twelve twenty three says this. Um, this is God speaking to his people. He says, for the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So that horrific night, the destroyer, um, angel of the Lord, God himself, comes through the land and, and a cry rises up in the land and Pharaoh hears it and Pharaoh realizes he himself has been struck by it and he finally relents and he releases the Israelites from slavery and captivity, but the Israelites had all been kept safe because of the blood on their doorposts and on the lintel. So the nation rose. Israel got up that next morning, and they walked out and and plundered the Egyptians on their way. The Egyptians were so happy to see them go, they basically just gave them whatever they asked for. And they ended up passing through the Red Sea, uh, which is a a powerful event, right? Passing through the waters. They passed through on dry land. Um, Passing through the waters is is often a powerful symbol of passing um, from life to death or from death to life. They, they go through kind of a resurrection experience in, through this, the passing through the Dead Sea, and then they find themselves on the other side on a journey to the promised land, the land filled with blessing. Y'all, the, the, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, was, was celebrated every single year by the Israelites to commemorate this dramatic night. And every year they looked back to this event and they gave thanks But they also looked forward. This event wasn't just about what God had done in the past in delivering them. It was what God would do in the future to permanently deliver them. In fact, it became the custom in Jewish homes to actually leave a seat open at the feast. They would would eat with their shoes on. They They would eat unleavened bread, and they would have an open seat at the table for Elijah. You're like, who's Elijah? Elijah was a famous Old Testament prophet. And there's a prophecy that says, before the day of the Lord comes, Elijah will come. And, and so, in a sense, it was a messianic sign. They were waiting for the Messiah. And they, they left a seat open. They looked back and they looked forward to their full deliverance and their full blessing. Now, y'all, Passover, this feast that we're talking about, took place 50 days ago. I mean, like, like 50 days ago, right? Seven weeks plus one day. The, the fact that Jesus was crucified, because that was Holy Week, y'all, That was Holy Week, right? We talked about that. The the triumphal entry and and, and the Last Supper was was during that Passover feast time that he shared with his disciples. The night of betrayal, the crucifixion on Friday, the resurrection on Sunday. This took place during the the feast of Passover, right? And and that's no coincidence, right? That's part of God's big plan. When, When Jesus was just starting his ministry, John the Baptist looked at him and said this. This is John 1, 29. It says, The next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why in the world would John the Baptist call Jesus the Lamb of God? Right? Call Him the Messiah. Call Him the Son of Man. Even call Him the Son of God. But why call Him the Lamb of God? because Jesus was the true Passover lamb. He would be killed to cover us with the protection of His blood. He would shed His blood. He would take the brunt of God's judgment so that God's judgment might pass over us. He took the weight of our sin so that the consequences of our sin would not fall on us. His blood marks our doorposts and our lintels. It covers us, it surrounds us, and it brings us inside where we are safe. Right? God judged the firstborn son, not Pharaoh's son, his own. He killed his own son on the cross. He, he put him forward in judgment as an act of love. That justice might be served, that he might be both just and the justifier of the ungodly, those who have faith in Jesus. Jesus was our substitute on the cross. He took our place, he died our death so that we could receive the blessing of his life. So we look back. We look back to our Passover lamb, right? Um, that, 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 that he was judged that judgment might pass over us. But like the Old Testament Jews, we also look forward. I want to show you something real fast. I, I can't spend a lot of time with this, but I, I just want to show you this because the lamb who to, took our judgment is also the lamb who's going to bring us into his blessing. Take a look at this from Revelation chapter 5. Okay? This is John having a vision. He's brought into the very throne room of God. The Apostle John, he's on the Isle of Patmos, he is is exiled, and God gives him this radical vision. Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or or under earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, that's Jesus, the root of David, right? He is is the beginning of David. He's also the descendant of David, has conquered. So that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw him. A lamb standing as though it had been slain. Y'all, the lamb died for us as our substitute. He rose again for us that he might impute to us or give to us the gift of his righteousness. And he is the only one worthy to open the scroll. What is this scroll that's written on, on the front and on the back? And and, and, and it's like this epic tragedy, right? It it is the greatest existential crisis ever to hit mankind. If nobody is worthy to open this scroll, it is complete despair. What is this scroll? We're never told. (laughs) I do believe it is the Lamb's book of life. I, I believe it is the chronicle of God's covenant people who will receive eternal, endless blessing. The book that is opened at the end of the book of Revelation that ushers us in to the complete blessing of his kingdom. So Passover, y'all, Passover was about Israel being delivered from Egypt, but it is also about us being delivered from slavery to our sin, slavery to our false gods, slavery to, to our um, inability to 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 worship the true God in our sin into the fullness of blessing. So what does any of this have to do with the feast of Pentecost? Right? That's the feast of Passover. What does this have to do with Pentecost? Well remember Pentecost means 50, 50 days. Something very, very important happened 50 days after Passover. Take a look at this. This is Exodus 19, 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, so after Passover, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. All right, on the third new moon, that's seven weeks, okay? That's seven weeks. Weeks They come to the, the plain of Sinai, and, and then um, they camp there, and, and then, um, then Moses goes up the next day onto the, the Mount of Sinai, right? Mount Sinai is, is, is where Moses interceded between Israel and God to create the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant we call the law. Uh, we call it the Old Covenant, right? The, the Bible is divided into Old Testament and New Testament. That, it's named after that. The Old Testament is, is, is all about the people who lived under this covenant that was made at Mount Sinai, right? And, and God comes down to the mountain with an earthquake and a rushing wind, and he's this, this, this terrifying fire on the top of the mountain, and he, and he gives a, a command, let no man and no beast touch the mountain lest they die. Only Moses can go into the holy presence of God, only one who can go to intercede to create this covenant. And, and, and he comes back and he's like, hey, y'all, do you want to enter into this covenant with God? If, if, if you obey, you'll be blessed, and if you disobey, you'll be cursed. And the people were all like, yeah, we're totally in. Let's do this thing. And so, and so God gives them the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, the very next chapter. Um, and then in the following chapters, he, he gives them over 600 more, right? We end up with 613 commandments that make up the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the law that governed uh, Jewish life, right? And, and the basic message was this. Keep the law and you'll be blessed. But break the law and you'll be cursed. And the, and the people said, we will do it. Now, here, I want to be really, really clear. Nobody was blessed by obeying the law. Nobody. We, we studied that in Romans chapter 3. The law showed you all the ways God wanted you to behave, but you couldn't. It acted like a perfectly, perfect mirror that showed you all your flaws, but gave you no power to correct them. And so what it did was it actually increased your awareness of sin. It actually stirred up sin and made the problem worse. It did not remove sin. It didn't help people get better. It actually made the, the struggle worse. So how could they be saved, right? In the same way we are. They weren't, they weren't saved. Here's, I want you to catch this. They could be cursed by the law, but still be blessed by God. They were saved in the same exact way we are today, by, by believing, right? By, by humbly coming to God to receive grace by faith. And, and, and they could, they also... Um, could be justified by God in the same way. But but by receiving the law, they became an object lesson to themselves and to all of humanity that that we can't fix ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We're so determined to fix ourselves. We're so determined to have self-improvement projects that justify us and and make us right. And God's like, look, y'all, I'll give you a perfect self-improvement project. I will actually lay out the perfect pathway to get you into the very blessing of God there you go, right? Even when we're given a perfect tool, we can't fix this mess because it's not within our power. The problem isn't the tool. The problem is our heart. Our heart governs our use of the tool, and and because we can't fix our heart, there's nothing externally that can actually help us. There is no self-salvation project that actually results in salvation. There's not one where, where all we're doing is, is re, we're, we're rearranging the furniture of our heart. That's all we're doing. We're not, we're, not, we're not getting a new structure, right? We might clean a few things up. We might make a few ugly things. We might hide them in the closet, but we can't make them go away. They became an object lesson to us that no amount of religious behavior can make you right, not even if it's under a God-given religious code. Can't get you there, right? So that's Old Testament pentecost right moses interceding for the people going up on the mountain god coming down in earthquake and in in fire and giving them a law in the new testament the new testament pentecost we see some very very powerful parallels right in the first pentecost the old testament pentecost god appeared in fire and earthquake and it inspired fear and distance, because God was holy and man was not, and it created a separation they couldn't bridge. In the second Pentecost, God appears as fire and a rushing wind with an invitation to nearness. In fact, so much so that, that it's not our job to go climb the mountain to meet God. God comes down and fills us. God Himself comes and inhabits the disciples, because Jesus had bridged the gap and paid the price. He had paid the, sacrifice, the sacrificial price necessary. At the first Pentecost, Moses went up the mountain to intercede for the people and he brought down judgment. In the second Pentecost, Jesus went up the hill of the skull to intercede for his people. He died there and he brought down blessing. In the first Pentecost, we were given a law of stone that could not change the human heart, it could only condemn human behavior. In the second law, the Spirit of God comes in and dwells us and writes the law on our hearts. We're no longer given an external code that we have to work really, really hard to obey and, 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 and achieve to earn God's, God's favor. No, now we already have God's favor. And therefore, because we are loved, we can move forward in relationship with God and be changed. Right? We become holy not to be loved by God. We become holy because we are loved by God. The, the law of God is written on our hearts through the indwelling Spirit. In the first Pentecost, the, the message was, do this and live. In the second Pentecost, the message that they went out preaching is that God did this so you can live. It's not about what you do for God. It's about what God has done for you. In the first Pentecost, after the Israelites break the law, like on the first day they get it and incur the judgment of God because because, uh, if you break the law, you get a curse, 3,000 Jewish men died in a single day. In the second Pentecost, we're told 3,000 men found life in a single day. When the disciples poured out into the streets and shared the gospel and people responded to this incredible invitation, in the first Pentecost, it is dark and heavy and solemn. The second Pentecost is a party. Y'all, it's a party. Y'all, you know, Pentecost, this, this Feast of Pentecost has several names, as we've talked about. The Feast of Weeks, I've explained that because it happened seven weeks after the second day of Passover. Uh, it's also called the Feast of the Harvest because it is a celebration of the bounty that God has given to His people. It was meant for people to bring the first fruits of all the things that God had given and and to to offer them up in this huge celebration. And and everybody came to Jerusalem for this big party to simply celebrate the goodness of God, to give thanks for the grace of God, to to give honor to the God who had had so enriched and blessed them. It was a party. It was a joy-filled celebration of the goodness of God. I love verses 12 and 13 in our passage. The the disciples spill out into the streets and and they are speaking, they're sharing the good news of Jesus rising from the dead in all these different languages. And verse 12 says, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? What? What? Right? Verse 13, But others were mocking and said, They are filled with new wine. (laughs) They're drunk, y'all. They're drunk. It doesn't matter if it's only 9 a.m., right? They're clearly drunk, right? Now, it's possible that they said this because they heard them speaking in all these different languages, and all they heard was gibberish and thought, well, they must be drunk because all we hear is gibberish. But I think it was more than that. My guess is it wasn't just that they were speaking in foreign languages. It's that they were speaking with such joy. It's that they, there, was, there, was, there, was a, there was a giddiness about them that made them seem tipsy, that made it seem like they, they, they had popped the cork a little too early, right? My guess is they, they weren't just preaching the gospel looking like they had been baptized in lemon juice. You know what I'm saying? I think they were out on the street overflowing with joy and hope and energy they weren't self-conscious they weren't worried about what they looked like they weren't even looking at each other they were so filled with the energy and the joy of the moment it was a party the spirit of god had come and dwelt his church his people and they shared that experience together and they shared that experience with the spirit the filling of the spirit and the fruit of the spirit love joy peace patience kindness goodness gentleness and self it just started flowing out of them as they shared the good news, laughing, smiling, talking. Now remember, they were in uh, uh, not exactly the friendliest environment. This message was not going to be received in a friendly way. But their joy wasn't anchored on their circumstances. Their joy was bubbling up from having been filled with the spirit of life the spirit of joy, the spirit of mission who was moving them and empowering them. Y'all, Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 is a radically important new stage in God's redemptive story. Just as important as God delivering the Israelites out of Egypt, just as important as God giving the Mosaic law to his covenant people in, in Exodus 19 and 20 are these events right here. Jesus was the true Passover lamb. The first Passover was just a foreshadowing, just a hint of the true and better Passover, right? Israel being delivered out of Egypt As important as that was, it was just a foreshadowing and a hint of a greater deliverance. Them passing through the Red Sea was just a hint of a a true and better resurrection and deliverance to a new life. Pentecost was the start of the age of the church. This space between the first and the second advent, the first and the second coming of Christ We live in this uniquely privileged time of being able to look back to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, our Passover lamb sacrificed and raised on our behalf and looking forward with an empty chair to to the day that we will be able to feast with him, that we will be able to share the meal as he returns and establishes his kingdom and the king is seated on his throne to reign Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 stands as our invitation back to the wonderful spirit-filled life. Y'all, I want to ask you something. When you read Acts chapter 2, does it seem familiar to you? When you read about their experience, I'm not talking about the rushing wind and the flames of fire, okay? That happened once, <laughs> right? We don't see that, that. That's not a regular occurrence, right? That, that was a dramatic event, just like, just like God showing up on Mount Sinai was a dramatic event for a very specific turning of the redemptive story. I'm talking about the results, because the same Spirit of God that came in and dwelt, the, the disciples, in the upper room is the same Spirit of God, believer, who now indwells you. Does this feel familiar to you? This energy, this joy, this this sense of mission and purpose, does it feel familiar to you? Listen, y'all, every believer has been given the Spirit. And if our lives don't reflect this, if our lives aren't um, manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control, we need to ask why. That's why I'm going to invite you back. As we move into this next sermon series, the Spirit-filled life, what I want to talk about, the dynamic principles of how we, who have been baptized in the Spirit, can be being filled with the Spirit. You're like, Steve, that doesn't even make any sense. I'll explain that later, okay? What I am telling you is that there's a unique experience available to you that you may be missing out on simply because you are not being being filled you're not being filled continually and progressively with the spirit so we're going to be talking about that starting next week i want to invite you back for that because we can experience this same joy this same energy this same purpose and when we do god will do this same work in us and through us, y'all. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let me close us in a word of prayer, and uh, we'll share communion together in a moment. Let me pray, <sighs> Father. I thank you. Um, I this this book, this Bible, this story is more beautiful um, than than um, I can give words to the way you wove this story together, the way thousands of years previously you planted seeds to help us as humans learn important lessons that we might in the end not simply be, be I don't know, educated, enlightened, but honestly that we might be softened, that, that we might be humbled, that we might receive this gift of grace, that we would set aside Our self-improvement projects, our self-salvation projects, all the ways we're working so hard to make ourselves right, to give us our own joy, to give us our own purpose, to give us our own energy, to set us free from the treadmill that exhausts us and get us nowhere. And to free us. So that we don't have to go to some temple to meet with God. We, as the collective people of God, have become the temple so that you can meet with us. We don't have to work our way up to you. You have come down to us, Lord, I thank you for this incredibly beautiful story of grace. Lord, I would pray two things. One, if there are those that are listening this morning who have not tasted this grace, who have not believed in your Son, have not come to faith in Christ, that Spirit, you would awaken them in humility to faith, that they might believe in the crucified and risen Lamb of God, the Savior, that they might be cleansed of their sins and be covered in the very righteousness of Christ. And Lord, I pray for those of us who are followers that you will awaken us once again to the beauty of this grace and ignite our hearts that we would not be content just being content, just making it through, that we would crave the blessings that have been given to us, that we would crave the joy and the energy and the purpose that your spirit has given us and can unleash within us. For your glory and our good, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.